Hey, it's Jeff Semple. I'm filling in for Alan Carter this week. Here's what's on the podcast today. Finance Minister Bill Morneau steps down. What school will look like in the fall and what the pandemic means for working mothers. All that coming up. Let's get to it. I wanted to start off the program today talking about relationships. Real talk here on Global News Radio. Relationships, as everyone knows who has ever been in one, currently in one now, they're hard work, right? They require constant attention. And of course, the hardest part of any relationship is the end of that relationship. You know, everybody knows breaking up is hard to do. Come up, come up, There you have it. You know, you know the song, uh, you know the feeling. I certainly do. Uh, before I convinced my lovely wife to settle for the likes of me and get hitched, uh, I had definitely been in several relationships. Uh, I'd been dumped. I'd been the dumper. Um, yeah, so it, it's hard, right? Breaking up is hard to do. Breaking and I remember. Up is hard. <laughs> And over the next hour, we'll be playing that song over and over and over to ensure you can't get that earworm out of your head for the rest of the week. Uh, and I remember one particularly hard breakup in high school where it wasn't one of mine, actually. It was the guy I went to high school with. Now, I'm not going to say his name here on the radio, lest you go looking through an old high school yearbook or something. But for the sake of the story, let's just call him Bill off the top of my head. Just pull that name off the top of my head. So Bill in high school was dating this girl. A lot of people in the high school thought she was kind of out of his league, but you know, whatever. Anyway, rumors started to go around that this girl was thinking of breaking up with Bill. Uh, and then sure enough, she asked to talk to Bill. Um, and so we're all kind of bracing for the bad news, but then much to our surprise, Bill comes out of that conversation and announces that actually Bill broke up with her. Uh, he just felt it was the right time to end the relationship and that he, you know, mostly is, is just interested in seeing other people now. Now, I, I, I don't need to tell you, you know, without even, you got, you don't even know Bill, but I don't need to tell you that nobody in the high school believed Bill's story. You see where I'm going with this? That's right. Another Bill. Bill Morneau faced the cameras yesterday in Ottawa to announce that he was breaking up with Justin Trudeau and the federal government offering his resignation. Now, the reason he gave was that he said he'd only ever planned to run for two elections. And, you know, seeing as steering this country through one of the greatest economic crises we've ever seen is probably going to take a while. Bill Morneau just figured it was a good time for him to step aside since he doesn't plan to run again in another election. And, oh, by the way, you know, he also announced that he was leaving this job so he could apply for another job as Secretary General with the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is, if you've ever heard of them, is an international organization, basically a think tank. There are a few dozen nation members, though that job likely won't come up for a few years. Um, so Bill Norno insisted, you know, this was his idea, that he was not asked to resign by the Prime Minister, that he offered his resignation to him. So Bill Morneau broke up with Justin Trudeau. Now, regardless of where you sit politically across the spectrum, regardless of your political stripes, I think we can pretty much all agree that that's a lie. I mean, that's simply not believable. Nobody believes that a financial crisis is the, quote, right time for the finance minister to pursue other opportunities, right? Ones that are a few years down the road. 
What is true, though, I think, you know, talking to seasoned political observers in Ottawa, including ours at the Ottawa Bureau for Global News, is that this is one of the strangest ways to orchestrate an exit that many of us have ever seen in political Ottawa. Uh, you know, if you, in case you sort of missed it over the last week or so, there had been a few leaks over a period of days, three different stories in three different news outlets, quoting anonymous sources, mostly in the prime minister's office, claiming that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his finance minister, Bill Morneau, weren't getting along, that they were clashing, butting heads. You know, there were a number of different details, but basically they were disagreeing over the plan to spend. Justin Trudeau wanted to spend more to get our, you know, invest our way out of this post-pandemic recession. Bill Morneau, you know, didn't really agree with that. And so that is the narrative that we were being sold over the last few days. Now, you know, that narrative is strange for a few reasons. We could talk about that. But I think, you know, it's worth noting that the opposition parties, the conservatives, the NDP, aren't buying that narrative at all. And they believe that Bill Morneau's strangely timed exit has everything to do with the We Charity controversy. Here's our Global Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson. They're saying that Bill Morrow is essentially the fall guy for Justin Trudeau. As you know, both are under investigation right That's now by the ethics commissioner uh, for the WE controversy. Mr. Morneau, remember, it turned out, has his daughter working there. His daughter is employed at the WE Foundation. And he'd also forgotten to repay $41,000 on a trip. Uh, both of those things, by the way, came as a surprise to the prime minister's office. And they were not very happy in particular about that $41,000 uh, that just kind of popped up at committee one day. People in, in Ottawa, in the opposition, who are saying basically this is the government trying to turn the page. They're going mm-hmm. to kick Bill Morneau out. They're going to pin it all on him and then try to move on. That's Mercedes Stevenson reporting from our Global News Bureau in Ottawa. And Mercedes has also confirmed, as you were hearing there in the news, that uh, the government, Trudeau, has already named or is about to name Bill Morneau's replacement. Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland will be taking over his finance post. And she will be, you know, the joke in Ottawa and all across the country is that Christian Freeland has basically up to this point been the minister of just about everything. Uh, including Deputy Prime Minister, of course. She will be stepping away from one of those portfolios. She will no longer be the Minister of Intergovernment Affairs. That post, that portfolio, will be going to Dominic LeBlanc, uh, who actually had previously stepped away from that role back in uh, April 2019 to battle cancer. He's said to be doing better on the mend and is ready to take up that post once again. Um, The other news that we heard um, is that the government is planning to prorogue Parliament in September. Now, we're hearing different reports in terms of exactly how long that prorogation will last, but the gist is that the Liberal Party plans to prorogue Parliament so that they can basically gather the team for a bit of a retreat, um, you know, a little cheerleading session perhaps, and then come back and continue to try and lead the country through this pandemic. Um, Needless to say, that has sparked a lot of anger already, including from the opposition parties who are upset about the fact that this is not the time to be proroguing parliament, um, you know, given everything that is going on. So, yeah, lots to lots to follow here. Lots of uh, balls in the air. That's for sure. But I think, you know, among other things, this story and this situation with Bill Morneau is raising further questions about Justin Trudeau's judgment and his leadership. If you buy the narrative that it appears was being sold by members of the Prime Minister's own inner circle that 
you know, Bill Morneau simply decided to go because him and Justin Trudeau were butting heads. Well, that raises questions about, you know, such as, isn't it the finance minister's job to protect the public purse, right? That is, that is his job. And so, you know, why would that result in Bill Morneau's exit? To talk about all of this and much more, we are joined on the line by liberal strategist Omar Khan. Mr. Khan, thanks so much for joining us here on Global News Radio. My pleasure. So I want to get your reaction first to the news, and there's been a lot of it this morning, of course, as I've been outlining there, Uh, but the news about this cabinet shuffle. So Krista Freeland poised to become the country's first female federal finance minister, and uh, also seeing Dominic LeBlanc filling in in the Intergovernmental Affairs post. Your reaction to that? So I think um, the the fact that um, Krista Freeland has been tasked with stepping into this role you know, bodes well for where the prime minister sees and wants this country to go. So you have to understand a little bit about uh, Ms. Freeland's background. Uh, so she's served for a number of years now in a very senior uh, economic portfolio, uh, two of them actually. So she's been the foreign minister, um, which uh, which involves obviously coordinating uh, our our global economic our our, our economic our, our our response to this global pandemic internationally with our allies, particularly those in the G7. But also prior to that, she was the Minister of International Trade uh, and the Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs. So, you know, I, I'm very proud as a Canadian today that we have our first uh, female minister, federal minister of finance. Uh, I also am, 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 am happy to see that it's Ms. Freeland because prior to joining politics, um, Christia, or Minister Freeland, uh, was quite active and even wrote a book about the, the, the growing trend globally. Uh, towards income inequality and the concentration of wealth amongst the super, super rich in society. And we've seen through this pandemic that the impacts have been disproportionately against those on the lower rung of the economic ladder, particularly women and people of color. And I and I suspect that as Canada begins to draft its recovery strategy, she will bring that lens uh, to all of the policy discussions. Speaking with liberal strategist Omar Khan, um, and Mr. Khan also wanted to ask you about the news that's coming out that uh, Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, plans to prorogue Parliament in September. Surely this is not the right time to be taking a break from Parliament. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, based on the media reports I've seen, there'll be a short prorogation uh, that'll enable the Cabinet to have a bit of a retreat. I think there are, there'll only be about 10 or 11 actual lost days of Parliament, uh, and then Parliament will resume uh, in late September or October. So, you know, I think given given where we are as a country and as a world, uh, you know, uh, in the midst of preparations to A, prevent or deal with a, a, second wave, a second wave of this pandemic that many people think is coming, but B, you know, we're in the position right now where we really need to bring all of our key minds, best minds to the table uh, to plot out what economic recovery uh, looks like and what transformational changes need to be made to the economy to make sure that that recovery is equitable. I think taking a break of 11 days is is not the biggest deal. I want to ask you as well about questions that are being raised about Justin Trudeau's leadership style, his governing style. Uh, you know, April 2019, we you know we heard we woke up to news that Justin Trudeau was kicking out. Jody Wilson-Raybould, Jane Philpott from the Liberal Caucus. Uh, Of course, we don't need to rehash that story. And now here, you know, news about Bill Morneau's exit, which I was saying off the top, nobody really believes was Bill Morneau's idea. Um, You know, starting to really paint a picture here of a prime minister who doesn't like it when people challenge his authority, when they speak up against him. 
The irony being that if someone had done that at the cabinet table during the We Charity discussions, he might have avoided the whole controversy in the first place. Yeah, you know, I do want to take a minute. You know, I talked a bit about Christopher Freeland. I want to talk about Bill Morneau for a sec. Uh, you know, this is a man who left a successful private sector career to join politics to serve the public. Um, you know, he led the implementation of an expansion of the Canada Pension Plan, the creation of a Canada Child Benefit that's lifted a quarter of a million kids out of poverty. Um, and, you know, clearly, uh, you know, there there was something that uh, precipitated him to make the decision uh, to leave cabinet. And it, it's not normal. You know, I can't pretend that that losing a cabinet minister or a finance minister in the middle of a global pandemic is ideal. Uh, but that being said, you know, the, the, the opposition and, and partisan pundits are, are going to throw darts. I don't think that Canadians want uh, our politicians and our members of parliament to be obsessed with hyper-partisanship right now. I think what they want us to be focused on uh, is all those things that I mentioned. Uh, coming together, unified as a country, putting together ideas on how we can plan for this second wave, how we can plan to rebuild our economy and to rebuild it in a way that actually is equitable across the board and helps working people in this country. Right. But, and you know, to play devil's advocate, I'm not sure it's really partisanship to talk about whether you have a prime minister who doesn't appreciate anyone who speaks up against him. And I mean, the, the narrative that was being spun in those leaks, in those press articles over the last week yeah. or so, talking about how they just weren't getting along uh, and that that precipitated Bill Morneau's exit. I mean, you know, how concerned are you about the the ongoing questions about Tr- Justin Trudeau's judgment and his leadership style? And that's not partisanship, right? That's a practical question for a guy who's going to try and lead our country through all of this. Well, like anyone who knows Krista Freeland uh, or many of the other strong members of this cabinet, uh, Navity Baines, Dominic LeBlanc, and others, will know that they have absolutely no issue speaking their mind uh, in cabinet. Uh, and that happens often, and it happens across all governments. It's, it's normal to have vigorous discussions. You know, with respect to the leaks that you referenced, I've learned, you know, through my long, long years in politics, that generally speaking, you have to take with a grain of salt anything you hear that's attributed to an anonymous source. There's an old adage in politics that, you know, people who actually know don't tend to talk, uh, and people who talk don't tend to know very much. Um, So I don't know if that is the case here, but I suspect it might be. And probably sums up uh, my hosting abilities on this program pretty well, too, as someone who uh, (laughs) talks a lot and knows very little. Uh, Omar Khan, liberal strategist, thanks so much for joining us here on Global News Radio. Really appreciate your insight. My pleasure. It is Tuesday, the 18th of August. Time is flying, but if you check that calendar app on your phone, you'll see it is exactly three weeks today that children, students in Canada's largest school board, the Toronto District School Board, will be heading back to school. Gulp collectively right across the city parents you know getting used to what has sort of become a bit of a suspense thriller here trying to you know waiting for the ending the twist ending trying to figure out how all of this is going to go today education minister Stephen Lecce and his team the government meeting with officials with the TDSB the Toronto District School Board to try and hash out their back to school plan and of course the clock is ticking here This comes after the province rejected the TDSB's initial proposal on Friday. That would have seen the board spend about $20 million to hire more teachers to cut elementary class sizes down to between 15 and 20 students, depending on the grade. 
And of course, class sizes have become one of the key sticking points in these negotiations with parents, teachers, health experts concerned that the current class sizes simply won't allow enough space for proper physical distancing. And the TDSB plan also proposed trimming the school day slightly by 48 minutes of classroom time, which would allow for more teacher prep time. Prep time has also become a major political sticking point in all of this. But uh, as I say, that was the TDSB proposal, and that was soundly rejected by the Ontario government. Here's the Education Minister, Stephen Lecce. We are, uh, we're spending the past days and the coming hours focusing on getting to a resolution. What we're asking school boards, particularly our uh, unions, to do is to provide the maximum flexibility for school boards to enable them to uh, teach a child for the entire duration of the day, to the extent that that is possible. There's 300 instructional minutes, 300 minutes of learning in a day in Ontario. We want all of that time to be used to the extent humanly possible for learning. And of course, uh, fundamentally, this comes down to a question of money uh, with the Ontario government you know, urging school boards to dip into their own savings, their own reserve funds to try and af- achieve these physical distancing measures within classrooms. Our next best guest has been doing a little calculus, a little math of his own in his spare time or lack thereof. Dr. Michael Warner is a critical care physician at Michael Guerin Hospital and the medical director of the intensive care unit and joins us once again here on Global News Radio. Dr. Warner, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure, Jeff. I know you're a parent as well. Uh, three kids, uh, I believe, under the age of eight, right? Uh, heading back to school um, in a few weeks, presumably, uh, as a parent first. How are you feeling about the way things are playing out? Uh, it's, hard, it's hard to just wear my parent hat. I guess as a parent <laughs> and a physician, uh, I'm completely unimpressed with the way things are going. I think that the, the government is really failing to recognize that unless there's adequate investment in making school uh, making sure school is safe, that we're not going to get past October. So, I mean, I, I was listening to the lead in there from Minister Lecce in, in focusing on making sure that those 48 minutes get get accounted for. You know, if, if kids are in school for 300 minutes a day for four weeks, that's not as good as being in school for fewer minutes per week for six or seven months. And I, and I think that's what we need to work towards. We need to make sure that the appropriate infection prevention control measures are in place in every school in the province, in particular in high-risk areas, before school begins and integrate uh, public health knowledge and public health monitoring to make sure that when outbreaks do occur, because they will occur, we're able to protect the school environment and the communities they serve. And for parents listening at home, uh, anxiously trying to decide what to do, right? Uh, I mean, they were, you know, originally sort of supposed to give their indication of whether they plan to send their children back or not earlier this week. But of course, you know, things are still in flux. Um, and, you know, I think some parents wondering, are, are, are some of these fears being overblown here, right? I mean, we have heard disagreement among some in the medical community, yourself, uh, you know, urging caution and, and saying that the plan as it stands now isn't good enough. Uh, colleagues of yours, Dr. Suman Chakrabarty with the Trillium Health Network, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, uh, describe it as a solid plan. Um, and they point to the lack of community spread at this point um, and pointing to that to suggest that, you know, the plan as it is from the Ontario government right now is just fine. Are they wrong? Well, I'm not going to speak to, I mean, I know both those physicians, and I think they're highly intelligent and great public servants with the messages that they're sharing. I'd say that, you know, first of all, we have to think about whether or not it's fair that some parents have a choice and other parents don't. Uh, because there are many parents who don't have a choice whether or not to send their kids back to school because they have to work, they don't have sick leave, um, you know, they are essential workers, whether in 
wives or they have multiple children um, and don't have child care. So just the, the concept of having a choice, I think, is a privileged position. And I think that although there are low rates of community spread, and I would agree with that, we can't ignore the fact that if COVID-19 enters a school, it will almost certainly exit the school into the community that surrounds that school. And as an ICU physician working in East York, serving communities like Thorncliffe Park and Crescent Town that have been hard hit by COVID-19, I think it would be absolutely devastating if those same marginalized communities got hit again if COVID-19 spread in those local schools back into the communities where people do not have the economic means to isolate themselves. So while school may be safe, if you're attending a private school or if you're attending a school in an area with, you know, with, with historically low rates of COVID-19, I don't think that we can say that school is safe in those marginalized communities without a more robust plan. And creating that plan is going to take time, it's going to take expertise, and it's going to take money. And there may be schools that can reopen on September 8th in low-risk areas, but I think that there are schools that shouldn't reopen September 8th until we have a much better plan to protect those communities. Right. And as you noted there, uh, we have seen, you know, the figures bearing that out, the fact that COVID-19 has disproportionately affected lower income, racialized communities. I know that's something uh, you and I were talking about long before those numbers came out, uh, given what you'd been seeing there on the front lines. Um However, though, playing devil's advocate, there, you know, this emerging evidence that suggests that children are, are, you know, as you say, less likely to get as sick. But then even when it comes to the concern about bringing that home, they're, they're less likely, children under the age of 10 especially, to transmit the virus. And we've heard that from health officials with the province that they are also weighing that in their calculus, that... You know, especially when it comes to a mask policy, for example, that children, you know, younger children, part of the reason they don't need to wear masks is because they, you know, masks might do actually do more harm than good if they're touching and fidgeting with their face the whole time. And the younger that you are, it appears, the less likely you are to transmit the virus anyway. Okay, let me, you said a number of things. I'm just going to go through them. So first of all, I, I, I haven't said that, you know, kids... Um, don't get sick. I think that uh, it's unclear. I mean, much of the COVID-19 pandemic has occurred during a time when kids have not been in school, have not been in congregate settings. So I think time will tell. I don't think there's any definitive evidence to say that children um, do not transmit the virus, uh, no matter the age. There have been studies that people have latched onto, but uh, the evidence is far from clear. I think, you know, when evidence is unclear, it's always best to be safe and maximally safe. So I would see children as small adults, and these small adults live in families with parents and potentially grandparents. They can be vectors of disease just as I can uh, to my wife and my children. So I don't think we should hang our hat on the fact that there's this presumption that kids are less affected or that they don't transmit the virus. Furthermore, these children, you know, wearing masks is not necessarily about protecting the children, although every kid should wear a mask in school. That's my position. It's about protecting the teacher who's surrounded by the 20 or 30 unmasked, you know, five-year-olds who is going to go home to their family and their social circle. Uh, You wear masks to protect other people, and if if everybody does it, everyone will be protected. You know, some people say that masks are not a panacea, and I agree with that completely, but it doesn't mean that you don't wear masks. It's just like a car, you know, airbags don't save lives alone, but they do with a seatbelt and um, traction control and four-wheel drive. So, uh, I don't think that we should say that kids are safer with respect to COVID-19. I think time will tell. And in fact, you know, every day on Twitter, there's more and more evidence that kids are just like adults. 
you mentioned Twitter, and just before we let you go, um, I know that a tweet and a video that you'd put out recently getting a lot of attention speaks to the sort of question around setting our priorities here um, as a country trying to battle this pandemic and kind of doing the math. You know, we've we put in uh, put up the money for a bunch of new ventilators, for example, uh, and and you know, what's your sort of pitch to to health officials federally, provincially, in terms of how the math breaks down? Well, as Benjamin Franklin, I think, said, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So the federal government spent $1.1 billion on 40,000 ventilators, of which 600 have been delivered. That's $27,000 per ventilator. We don't need 40,000 ventilators. In fact, we, we, the default treatment of COVID-19 is no longer using a ventilator. So I don't know who made that decision. Uh, but in terms of new money spent by the Ministry of Education in Ontario, that's $377 million, not counting the money they can borrow from themselves. Uh, and that works out to about $184.67 per child. There's 2,040,000 uh, students in Ontario. So we're spending $27,000 on ventilators that we don't need and we can't staff. We don't have enough nurses, respiratory therapists. And we're spending $185 on each child in Ontario to keep them safe. If we keep the kids safe, we're not going to need the ventilators in the first place. So I think that we need to have a serious conversation about our priorities. It's it's very attractive and very sexy to stand in front of a podium and say that you're buying ventilators. But what's much more important is make sure that children, teachers, and staff are protected in schools so that we don't need that equipment in the first place. Speaking with Dr. Michael Warner, critical care physician at Michael Guerin Hospital in Toronto. Dr. Warner, thanks so much for your time again. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Jeff. Take care. Hey, welcome back to the program. Jeff Semple in for Alan Carter this week. Uh, basketball fans here in Toronto got an exciting kickoff to the first game of the NBA playoffs yesterday. The Raptors winning pretty easily against the Nets, and they'll be back in action tomorrow. Hockey fans, of course, have already had their hearts broken, an annual tradition here in this city. But what about football fans? The league, the CFL, was originally scheduled to kick off its 2020 season in early June, but of course that was before the pandemic changed everything. And we found out yesterday, officially, what many had been suspecting for a while, CFL cancelling its season. The Grey Cup will not be awarded for the first time since 1919. To talk about that, we are joined on the line now by the man in charge, the commissioner of the Canadian Football League, Randy Ambrosi. Mr. Ambrosi, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time. It's nice to be with you, Jeff. Uh, thanks for having me on. Got to ask you, you know, obviously this decision was prompted by the Liberal government's decision to deny your request for a $30 million interest-free loan that you'd said would help to get this season going. Um, You know, obviously in in a slightly different format, in a hub city plan in Winnipeg. What was your reaction to the government's rejection? Well, I suppose, uh, Jeff, really it was disappointment. You know, we had had... um, we had had a couple of, and, and many great conversations, but a couple of moments in the past two months where, you know, at, at the government's uh, urging, we, we came to the table. I, I thought uh, I thought those discussions were incredibly positive. They gave us lots of reason for hope that something could happen. And, uh, you know, in the end that it didn't. And, you know, I, 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 know, the, I know the government's up to... Uh, its eyebrows with uh, lots of challenges, but I I thought, you know, it was a a real opportunity to get our players back on the field and, you know, entertaining fans from, um, you know, all corners of this great country of ours. And in the end, it uh, it didn't happen. So, yeah, Rod, the word, uh, or Jeff, I should say, the word is just disappointment. 
Yeah, uh, and obviously a lot of disappointment for football fans. Um, and, you know, we've heard, you know, questions about your handling of, of this over the last few months. Obviously, you know, an unprecedented situation here. But, of course, you know, back a few months ago, your original request for a federal bailout of up to $150 million sparked a lot of controversy. Um, and questions about the business plan generally that was put forward. Uh, bear with me if you can. I want you to listen to a clip from a professor of economics at Concordia University in Montreal, Moshe Launder, who's also a CFL plan fan. And this was his reaction to the news. They really didn't have a plan in place for how to deal with this. They had talked about the, the bubble in Winnipeg, uh, but it was so badly planned. It was so uh, haphazard. Uh, from just a, a business plan standpoint, that you knew that this was doomed to fail. And I, I think today was just kind of the acknowledgement that, yeah, they completely gacked this. I want to give you a chance to respond to that. Uh, do you regret your handling of, uh, of, of the pitch to try and make this season work? Well, you know, I'll, I'll start by saying respectfully, I, I don't think anyone who wasn't inside of the league can really... Uh, have an accurate assessment of our of our planning, and I think that to a degree that's unfair. But listen, what I've what I've learned, Jeff, uh, is that everyone is entitled to an opinion, and and uh, you know, you, to the best of your ability, you want to show respect to those who who are at the very least interested in in what we're doing. But uh, look, along the way, there are always things when you're doing something you've never done before that you would like to do differently. I go back to that you know, original government ask, and even, you know, frankly, the way you described it, I think we, I think we erred. We, what we tried to do was show the government the magnitude of what could happen to this league if the COVID uh, crisis, you know, lasted for, you know, two full years and everything that could possibly go, go wrong, went wrong. And in, and in doing so, that number, that $150 million number became the number. But if you look, you know, a little bit deeper, you'll you'll know that you know that that was actually a, that was actually the outcome of a lot of phases and and a lot of uh, detail that uh, that that and that part of the story didn't get tell didn't didn't you know wasn't the highlight it wasn't the headline, uh, but you know the truth is Jeff of course there are things we wish we would have done differently but. Uh, you know, we were we were scrambling uh, to a degree because obviously we were planning to build off a tremendous 2019 season, a great success in Calgary, and all of a sudden we found ourselves in something uh, uncharted waters. So, look, I uh, I said yesterday, you know, we're watching uh, we're watching a person uh, on the world stage today that never takes responsibility for anything. Like there's never a day that that person accepts responsibility for anything other than the good things. And, uh, and frankly, Jeff, I won't be that guy. And, you know, I am the commissioner of this league and, uh, and therefore I, I do, I do bear responsibility for how it's gone and I'll, and I'll never shirk away from that. And my goal in all of this is to learn from, uh, from what happened and, uh, and, you know, I'm committed to helping this league, uh, you know, find its way to a tremendously successful 2021. Speaking with the commissioner of the Canadian Football League, Randy Ambrosi, here on Global News Radio with a sort of not-so-veiled reference to Donald Trump, I think, there, uh, Randy. But <laughs> we'll talk about him another day. I think, you know, in terms of lessons learned and, and looking forward, I know you've been talking, you know, already about looking forward to 2021. And, you know, given the questions and concerns around the, the CFL's 
business model generally, do you see an opportunity here to make any changes moving forward? Yeah, I, I do, Jeff. And in fact, that's where, you know, there's there is reason and room to be optimistic. Uh, you know, one of the things that we've been talking about and making some headway on over these past uh, three years has been a, a more collaborative approach off the field, you know, more resource sharing. And if if nothing else, what uh, has been happening for these past five months has really focused us on that. I think we can dramatically improve our business model uh, a lot more a lot more collaboration and cooperation off the field and uh, and let's leave all the all the competition for the on-field activities uh, you know there's a there's a real chance for us to to do a reset here having our our strongest teams help our weaker teams to really focus on how do we look at the examples of what uh, happened in Calgary. Calgary now one of our strongest franchises that went through its troubles in the in the mid eighties and, and came out of it stronger than ever. Obviously Saskatchewan and you know wasn't that long ago where they had a telephone to save the team and now it's a iconic franchise. Uh, we we have things we can do, we're gonna do them. But Rod or sorry, Jeff, one of the things that I, I feel strongly we have to use this time to reach into communities that uh, haven't traditionally been CFL fans. We've got to do what uh, Larry Smith did in Montreal when he, when he helped orchestrate the turnaround of the Alouettes to one of the greatest eras in CFL history. Uh, what we have to do is, is look at the lessons learned there about reaching into these communities and inviting people to be, to join this great league and, and, and understand it's, how it makes you can it can make you feel more Canadian because of the the nature of our league and the nature of our players being so uh, you know so open open and and inviting. We're going to do a lot of that work in the in the weeks and months ahead and open some doors that perhaps we we haven't opened before. So there's lots of opportunities and of course uh, like the rest of the world we're still facing the questions of how long will this COVID crisis last and. And we're going to have to, you know, carefully plan now for what, uh, you know, what various scenarios might lie ahead. But, you know, today I'm, I'm sad and disappointed, especially for our players. But, uh, you know, I woke up this morning reminding myself that we have a, an opportunity uh, to, to make our league better and stronger. And that's, uh, and that's where my focus is. Speaking with Randy Ambrosi, the commissioner of the Canadian Football League, a day after he announced the unfortunate news that the season will be cancelled. But looking ahead to 2021, Randy Ambrosi, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, Jeff, thanks very much and best wishes to you and uh, and all your listeners. Hey, welcome back to the program. Jeff Semple sitting in for Alan Carter this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. You know, for political junkies, uh, it's been uh, quite a week so far, only a couple days into it now. Uh, of course, here in Canada, with all the going on in uh, Parliament Hill, Bill Morneau's exit, Christian Freeland's promotion, uh, and south of the border, of course, we have the Democratic National Convention. Uh, Michelle Obama really making headlines with her speech last night. Bill Clinton scheduled to speak tonight. And, you know, it's interesting. I was looking at an, the latest opinion poll that was taken ahead of the convention puts Biden with a pretty healthy lead of about 10 points or so. But when you delve a little bit further into those statistics, you will find that if women weren't allowed to vote, it would be a much closer election. Women back Joe Biden by 56% to 40%. Men 
It's about 51 to 43. It's much closer within the margin for error. So, yeah, if you want Donald Trump out of office, you can thank the women uh, who are lining up to vote him out of there in much larger numbers than the men. And, you know, incidentally, today marks a pretty significant anniversary, the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment in the United States, when the words, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied on account of sex, were added to the U.S. Constitution back on August 18th, 1920. The more you know, right? Of course, that was just the first step. That did not include women who were Native Americans, Chinese, or black, but um, it was nonetheless a significant a moment, a significant moment in uh, American history, and has also, you know, got a lot of people talking about the work that is still to done to, to, to do. Excuse me. After a hundred years, many of the same issues that women were grappling with then still exist today, and particularly so as we're discovering in a pandemic, which has sparked a recession, and what has been dubbed by some observers as a she session. Try saying that three times fast. A she session, because the pandemic is threatening to wipe out decades of progress for working mothers in particular. We are joined on the line by now by Anushka Zakaria, who uh, works in labor law and is an associate at Levitt LLP. Anushka, thanks so much for joining us here. Really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. So we've, we have seen um, some reports now where we are actually seeing this sort of quantified. There was a report out just recently from RBC Economics that called the hit on women's employment unprecedented. 1.5 million women in Canada losing their jobs in the first two months of the pandemic. And unlike, you know, past recessions, the unemployment rate for men, where we usually see the unemployment rate for men higher than women, it's not been the case this time. So from your vantage point, why is that? What's going on? Essentially, it relates or comes back to the child care obligations, which really sort of puts women back after so many years of progress, especially in the employment and working, you know, getting back into the workforce, it really does create a bad precedent. So what happens is a greater proportion of sort of women with children under the age of 18 have been required to either work from home or are forced to spend more time caring for their children at home despite having full-time jobs. And it's likely that you know, the longer women are away from work because of this pandemic, the less likely they are to return, especially now with online schooling being available or becoming available for the coming school year. Right. And of course, here in Toronto, uh, we'll be half and half, I think, more or less for uh, remote learning versus in-classroom learning for high school students and still questions about what the school year will look like for others. Um, what, what do you see? I mean, this is a tough question, but what do you see as mm-hmm. the solution to this? I mean, where do we start? I mean, that is a difficult uh, question. It's up to employers at this point to really try and work to reverse this damage and reverting back to these antiquated sort of family roles that women have had to play. There have been more men in the last few years that, you know, start to take parental leave or will stay home with the children. But now with COVID, we're really seeing a disproportionate amount of women staying home and taking that over. So if employers are able to, you know, either recall women on as equal a basis as men, because at this point we're looking at about two thirds of the workforce that has come back to work since the pandemic started, 
that two-thirds has been male versus female. So if employers are able to recall sort of 50-50 women versus men or even make accommodations for those that are working full-time, such as, um, you know, daycares available within offices or some companies if they're larger or allowing them to homeschool, make flexible work hours for pickups and drop-offs, things like that. Anushka Zachariah, an associate at the law firm Levitt LLP. Anushka, I'm afraid we're out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. But thank you so much for your insights. Really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch The Alan Carter Show every weekday starting at noon.